Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We're starting a new sermon series today, having finished Romans last Sunday. And so today we're beginning a series called Trembling Before the Word, What Scripture Says About Scripture. And the title of this series is taken from a passage in Isaiah chapter 66 where God says, The one to whom I look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so we're going to take today and the next two Sundays to explore the nature of Scripture, in particular what the Bible says about the Bible. And we're answering three questions. Today we're going to be talking about whether the Bible is true. Next Sunday, is the Bible clear? Is it understandable? Can you understand it? Can we expect to understand it? And then on October 30th, Reformation Sunday, we'll explore the question, is the Bible enough? Do we need something outside the Bible for us to understand who God is. Now this is a very important exercise because all of the biggest life questions that we might have, such as, who is God? Can we know Him? What is He like? Is my life significant? Does God care about me? Can my sins be forgiven? Can I know that God is for me and not against me? Is there any hope that the sorrow and injustice and pain that we see in this world all the time will ever be corrected or eliminated? Is there life after death? Is there a place called heaven? Is there a place called hell? How do I know if I'm going to one or the other? And is there anything I can do about it while I'm still alive? All of these questions are answered in the Bible. I mean, there are no more important questions than the ones that I just submitted to you. And we look to the scriptures to find them. And so that's why it's so important that we spend time considering what scriptures are like. We did this actually a few years ago, and I think it's so important that we're doing it uh, again. Um, we're taking a, a little different angle on it this time. But another reason that we're doing this is because the Bible, although it is highly valued, it's the best-selling book of all time, nonetheless, the Bible is constantly under attack. It's constantly undermined. I uh, read uh, an article interview with a very famous British actor who said that whenever he goes to a hotel, the first thing he does is he finds the Bible in the drawer, he pulls it out, and he rips out all the pages that offend him because he can't stand to sleep in a room with those offensive passages being nearby him. I saw uh, an article about the American Library Association who annually comes out with a list of the most challenged books, and by challenged books they mean books um, where people have submitted complaints to a library or a school asking for a particular book to be removed. And in 2015, for the very first time, the Bible showed up on that list. Number six, the Bible is the sixth most challenged book in America. People writing to their libraries and schools asking that the Bible be removed from the shelves. I also uh, spent some time this week listening to a sermon from a um, very popular mega church pastor in America, and basically the message of the sermon was that uh, the Bible's truthfulness is really not that important. He went on to make the point that really the most important thing is that we know who Jesus is. 
That's the issue. It's not whether the Bible is true, and we shouldn't get hung up on that question, because all that really matters is who Jesus is. Hopefully you see some problems with that statement. Friends, the only way we know who Jesus is through the Bible. <laughs> if the Bible is not true, we can't know who Jesus is. And so I share that with you not to bash this preacher who um, uh, I've read his books and, and I think he does a lot of good work, but it, it just seems even in the church you have some attempts to just kind of undermine our confidence and trust in the scriptures. So today we're going to be talking about that particular question. Is Bible true? Now, the thing about the Bible is that you can't look to certain books of the Bible that devote themselves to just one subject. In other words, there's no book in the Bible about the Bible. In order to see what the Bible says about the Bible, we have to look throughout the Bible from beginning to the end, and we gather together various passages that address the Scriptures. And so while we're going to be beginning here, we're going to be beginning here with Psalm 19. We're going to be looking at quite a few other passages. So I'm going to be giving you a lot of information here today, so hopefully you're all awake and alert. So let's begin. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 19. It's reading verses 7 through 11 today. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Here's the Word of the Lord, speaking about the Word of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, keeping them. There is great reward. Lord God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, I'm just going to lay out for you my, my case here for, um, uh, for asserting that the Bible is true. Um, we see here in the psalm that there is repeated affirmations about the reliability of the Bible. It is perfect, verse 7. It is unblemished. It is sure, verse 7. That is, it is firm. It is reliable. Um, verse 8, it is right. That is, there is nothing wrong in it. Um, verse 8, also, it is pure. That is, there is no mixture of evil. In the scriptures. And then lastly, in verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true. That is, the scriptures are dependable, they are reliable, they correspond with reality. That's what the Bible says about the Bible. That's what Psalm 19 says about the scriptures. Now, I want to advance this and, and ask this question. I think Jesus, the Bible, it's a very important question for us to consider. Because Jesus is the one we believe who came to lay down his life on the cross, to shed his blood for sins, and was resurrected from the dead. That alone is astonishing and amazing, but what's even more amazing about that is that that's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. 
He said repeatedly, I'm going to go to a cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again. He said this to his disciples, and that's exactly what happened. And if someone predicts that he's going to die and be risen from the dead, and that's what happens, that's a man you want to listen to. If he's going to be right about the resurrection of his own body from the grave, it's, there's a high likelihood he's right about a lot of other things. And so what Jesus believes is certainly something that we want to believe. And what he thinks about the Bible, I think, is what we want to think about the Bible. And so this is the case that I want to make for you today. Jesus believed the Bible to be true, so you should too. If there's anybody whose views we should want to hold, it would be Jesus, as evidenced by his resurrection. He believed the Bible to be true, so you should too. So I'm going to make this case for you by considering Jesus' approach to both the Old and the New Testaments, okay? Because we have two Testaments in the Scriptures. First of all, I want to show you this. Jesus presumed the truthfulness of the Old Testament. I'm going to give you several examples here with passages to, to prove this. Uh, on the screen. Jesus presumed the truthfulness of the Old Testament. We see this in a variety of ways. First of all, Jesus presumed that the Old Testament was historically true. The claims <clears throat> that the Old Testament makes about historical events, not just theological truths, but historical events, Jesus assumes them to be true. So here's Luke 11, 30 and 31. This says this, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. She came from the ends of the earth. Hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Look what Jesus is doing. He's referring to various people and places. He refers to Solomon, King Solomon. That's David's son, a real man. He refers to the queen of the south. That's the queen of Sheba, talked about in 1 Kings 10. That's a real woman. And he refers to Nineveh, a city in Syria. That is a real place. Back it up to the beginning, and he also talks about Jonah. You all know who Jonah is, right? Jonah is the one who got swallowed in the belly of a whale lived there for a time, and then was vomited up alive. And most of us, who tend to be a little bit skeptical, hear a story like that and say, no way that can be true. There's no way that can happen. It's got to be a myth. It's got to be a fable. Look what Jesus is talking about. In the context of this passage, and this shows up in other parts of the Gospels too, he's making references to other historical people and events, clearly assuming them to be real, includes Jonah among them. Throughout the Gospels, you'll see Jesus referring very often to those aspects of the Old Testament that we are most inclined to disbelieve. And Eve, Noah, Jonah, and he cites them as if they are historical truth, as if they really happened, because that's what he believed. Jesus believed the events of the Old Testament were historically true. Jesus also presumed that the Old Testament permanently true. Is it wasn't just something that was true for the Jews thousand or two thousand years ago. Something that's true for all times and all places and all cultures. So here's John chapter 10 verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them talking to the Pharisees. Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. He's quoting Psalm 82 there. 
I'm not going to get into the explanation of that psalm. It would take too much time. It's kind of complicated. Look where he goes from here. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, Jesus says. Scripture can't be broken. The word for broken there, it means released or dismissed or mitigated or dissolved. It can't happen to scripture. Scripture's not going away. As it says in Isaiah 40, the flower fades, the grass withers, we see things die and fade away in our world all the time. But the Word of God is not like that. The Word of God stands forever. can't be dissolved, can't be dismissed, cannot be broken. Permanent. It's a permanent fixture in the human landscape, God's Word. This also presumed the Old Testament was entirely true. 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He's on the road to Emmaus. He's speaking with his disciples, and he says this, these are my words. I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand scriptures. Three divisions, the law of Moses, prophets, Psalms was a very common way to sum up the entire Old Testament. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is that every bit of the Old Testament is about me. He's not dismissing any part of the Old Testament that he considers to be too obscure or too difficult or too complex. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus, relevant, true, and believable. It also says that the Old Testament is humanly true. I couldn't figure out really a better way to say that, so that sounds kind of weird, but what I mean by that is Jesus believed that even though the books of the Old Testament were written by human beings, they were still true. Jesus didn't seem to have a problem with the fact that human beings wrote the Old Testament. To him, that wasn't a difficulty in accepting that they could also be the words of God. Very often you hear people say that the Bible is written by men. How can it be true? We believe the Bible was written by men, but we believe the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit was able to preserve those men from error. And here's a way that we see this, Matthew 19. Um, you kind of have to read between the lines to see this, but look what Jesus says here. He's speaking and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's answering a question here about divorce. And said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is from Matthew 19, but what Matthew is doing is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And you see the quotation there, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. That's Genesis 2, 24. Interesting thing about that particular quote is that that is not a direct quote from God. If you go back and look at Genesis 2, 24, that's just part of what I believe Moses wrote the book of Genesis that's just part of what Moses was writing in the early chapters of Genesis. It's not directly attributed to God in Genesis 2, but look what Jesus does. Have you not read that he who created them, God, said what Moses then wrote in Genesis 2.24? See what he's saying? He's saying the fact that a human being wrote Genesis is completely consistent with believing that nonetheless God said it too. God used the human writer of the scriptures to make his will known. The way J.I. Packer says this, God first humbled himself for our salvation in the incarnation and on the cross, 
And now he humbles himself for our knowledge of salvation by addressing us in and through the often humanly unimpressive words of the Bible. Humanly unimpressive is just sometimes we see the grammar's not quite right, and sometimes we see kind of messy things in the scriptures, but none of that obstacle to those words simultaneously being the words of God for us. John Calvin used to say that um, God speaks in the scripture. It's kind of like a, a mother with a newborn child, and the, the mother uses baby talk, uh, just reduces her common vernacular in a way that the baby can understand. It's kind of what God is doing in the scriptures. God's baby talk so that we, finite human beings, can comprehend and understand what he has to say. And of course, we'll talk about that more next week. Are these words really understandable? Can we really understand the Bible? So the last thing Jesus presumed here about the Old Testament is that it is written true. True as the written word. Matthew 5 says this, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. An iota, that's just the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. Dot is something used probably in the Hebrew alphabet to make certain distinctions, probably what he has in, in mind there. But you see what clearly Jesus has in mind is the written word, the written text. Many times, you know, you hear people saying, oh, you know, if, if God would only speak to me, if I could only hear his voice, then I could know what he really thinks and what he's really like. As if the audible voice of God is somehow superior to the written word of God. It's not, friends. Jesus was referring here not to the audible voice of God, but to the written word of God. It has full confidence in its reliability. You know, I think probably the best example of the value um, that Jesus placed on the scriptures is the fact that when he was hanging on the cross, bearing your sin and my sin, hanging there in agony, in pain, in pain, and experiencing the separation of his father who had turned away from him as wickedness and evil of the world was laid upon him, was on Jesus' lips was scripture. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his most intense, lowest, painful moment, scripture was on his heart and on his mind. So, friends, let me put this to you like this, by way of application, particularly to those of you who might be kind of skeptical about the scriptures. And let me say that I don't mean that we've figured everything out about the Bible, and I know there's lots of difficult passages in the Bible, and there's lots of things that give us trouble, and we spend a lifetime working together as a community of faith trying to understand these things. We should ask our questions. We should discuss these things. I, I'm not suggesting that that shouldn't happen, but when it gets right down to it, whether you're going to believe the Bible or not, given Jesus' presumption of the truthfulness of the Old Testament, I just want to ask you, are you harder on the Bible than Jesus is? Do, do you think that really that you know something that Jesus didn't? If Jesus presumed that the Old Testament was true, even with all of its strange and odd stories and miraculous events, if Jesus presumed it was true, shouldn't you? Resurrected Son of God believed it was true, shouldn't you? Well, let's go on to the New Testament. This is a little bit trickier, isn't it? Because... Jesus didn't have a copy of the New Testament. The New Testament was written 
after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so I can't say that he presumed the truthfulness of the New Testament because as a collection of 27 books, it didn't exist. I will say this, Jesus promised the truthfulness of the New Testament. He made certain promises about how this was going to come out. And so let me take you through some passages and show you what I mean. Four passages from John. You can remember this by just thinking of the chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17. There's one passage from each of these chapters that addresses this issue. Here's John 14. It says, Helper, Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's speaking to his disciples, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I would suggest, friends, that, that's not just about being in a tight spot and, and being going through hard times and then just remembering something that Jesus said for your own comfort. I think there's something a little more. I think that's true. Jesus does that, but I think there's something more at work here. Uh, John chapter 15, same kind of thing. When the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, Spirit of truth, who promised, excuse me, who proceeds from the Father, who will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. The addition there, the Spirit is going to reveal to you, disciples, certain things about me and about what I've taught you. And then the next step is you're going to bear witness about what you hear from the Holy Spirit as he brings to your memory what I've told you. Jesus has a task for his apostles in particular. John 16, same thing. When the Spirit of truth comes, <clears throat> he will guide you into all truth. And he will declare to you the things are to come. So even things that Jesus hadn't spoken, but things to come in the future, those things would be given to them by the Holy Spirit. John 17, 20 kind of brings this home. High priestly prayer, Jesus praying to the Father, and he says, Father, I do not ask for these only, not just for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who he's talking about? You and me. We're the ones who believe through the words of the disciples. The promise that Jesus is making here is that the Holy Spirit is going to give you a supernatural ability to remember the things that I've taught you so that you can write them down in the New Testament and so that people who read the New Testament can learn about Jesus, believe in him, and be saved. That's what he's saying. It's a promise. It's a promise about what's going to happen in the writing of the New Testament. Now, I know some of you might think that just sounds... can that be? I mean, how... How could they remember all those things that Jesus said? You know, that's, that's maybe a hard thing to accept. I would just say this. The Holy Spirit of the living God is being promised to give supernatural aid to these disciples and apostles. Oral tradition was a very common way for people in that time to, to remember. They didn't have books in quite the same way that we do. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have pre-recorded. They couldn't put in a cassette tape or play something on the Internet. You know? So they had to resort to other methods by which to remember things. It was very common for Jews in that time to, remember en to uh, memorize enormous portions of the Old Testament. And if I just said to you, to most of you anyway, if I said Jack and Jill went up the hill, what? pail of water. I would, I would almost guarantee it that none of you have probably read that anywhere. At the very least, you probably didn't learn that by reading it somewhere. You probably learned it because your mom and dad taught it to you. You heard it over and over again. Even though you haven't recited it in 20 years, you can probably recite it without 
any effort whatsoever because our ability to remember things actually is better than sometimes we think. So I don't think it is out of the question to think that Jesus' disciples, particularly with the aid of the Holy Spirit, could remember the things that Jesus taught them so that they could write it down in the New Testament and we could read about what Jesus had for us. Ultimately, our confidence in the New Testament is going to depend on whether we trust what Jesus is saying right here, the promises that he's making about the Holy Spirit. Think Jesus faithful to that? Do we think the Holy Spirit can really do that? I think he can. I think he can. Now, let me address just one thing that, that I'm guessing probably that some of you are, are thinking and maybe have thought of at the very beginning of this, of this sermon. The subtitle to this whole sermon series is what Scripture says about Scripture. And, and immediately you might be thinking, wait a minute, why are you appealing to Scripture? Tell us what we ought to believe about Scripture. Aren't you assuming the authority of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture, in order to show me the truthfulness of Scripture? It's a circular argument, isn't it? And it is. I'll grant you that. And here's how I would respond to that. It is a circular argument, yes, but I would say, first of all, Jesus did it. Okay, I know, I'm appealing to Scripture already, aren't I? I that's true. Jesus did it. Isn't it interesting how Je throughout the Gospels you never see Jesus trying to prove the authority of the Bible? He never does that. He just assumes it. In fact, do you know, ever notice that the Bible never tries to prove the existence of God? no book on the existence of God. In the beginning, God, first verse of the Bible, it assumes God. That's because the Bible is assuming something at the very beginning that is true, a foundational starting point for its outlook on all of life, and that is that God exists. And I would say that all of us have something like that. All of us have some kind of fundamental starting point from which we begin all of our reasoning. And I would say that that starting point is very difficult for you to prove. You have to assume it. For instance, if I were to say, prove to me that words are reliable. Immediately you start speaking, you're using words. How are you going to prove that words are reliable without using words? You can't. How, if I asked you, maybe you say, well, you can use sign language. Okay, well, um, how about proving that reason is reliable? I don't know if there's any way that you can prove that reason is reliable without assuming the reliability of reason. Even begin an argument, rational argument. You have to assume that. How about somebody who says, science is the final judge of all truth claims. I won't believe it unless science proves it. That in itself is not a scientific statement. You can't prove that statement by science. That's just a, a position that you have. It's something you believe. You can't prove it. You're starting with that as your first fundamental starting point. It's kind of like when a parent says to a child, clean up your room. The child says, why? And the parent says, because I said so. Kind of a circular argument, isn't it? It's the parent appealing to his or her own authority. But the parent has the right to do that because the parent is the final authority in the household. Can rely on his or her own authority. So um, here's what Kevin DeYoung says is this, we go to the Bible to learn about the Bible because to judge the Bible, any other standard would be to make the Bible less than what it claims to be. If I appeal to anything else to try to prove to me that the Bible is true, then that thing I'm appealing to becomes my highest authority. My highest authority is the Bible, so I can't appeal to anything outside of the Bible. I have to look to the scriptures. I, I'm, I'm aware that that's not satisfactory to probably a lot of you. <laughs> I would just challenge you to think. There's just no way to get out from under this. We're, we're all arguing in a circular way. 
depending on our fundamental starting point. So last thing I want to say is this. Do you want to know the best way to know that the Bible is true? It says, John 8, here's Jesus. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. It doesn't say, figure out if you know it's the truth, and then you'll know how to abide by my word. That's not what he says. Abide by my word, and then, then you'll know the truth. If I say, ah, oh, this chocolate cake is so good, how are you going to know whether that's true or not? I'll take a bite of the chocolate cake. <laughs> if I say, you need to learn how to swim, how are you going to do that unless you get in the pool? If you want to know if the word of God is true, you've got to obey it. The most fundamental command of the Bible is this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the sole provision for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn from your morality and your religion and your good efforts put them aside, repent of them, and acknowledge Jesus shed blood as sufficient for you. Trust in him, and then reorient your life. Objection to scriptures. And Jesus says, the truth will set you free. We're getting ready to come to the table. We need to prepare for that. Pray and ask for God's blessing. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. Um, We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us an example of how we should approach the scriptures. Jesus, we pray that even though our faith is weak, that you would give us stronger and stronger faith in the truth of the word. In Jesus' name we pray.